This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I am Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 2, Lesson 2. The reading is the book of Nehemiah. We'll start with my first impressions. Nehemiah is another one of these books with a lot of names. I've noticed because, as I've mentioned earlier, this year in my Bible reading program, I'm boxing in all of the proper names in pencil. And the names look different in Nehemiah and Ezra and First and Second Chronicles than they did before. Part of it may be what we read in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, verse 24. As for their children, the children of the return, that is, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them knew how to speak the language of Judah, but only the language of his own people. The language of Ashdod would have been fundamentally different than the language of the Israelites, the Hebrew language. The Philistines that would have lived in Ashdod, these were not even Semitic tribes, so the language may have been quite different, unlike the language of Ammon or Moab, which would have been similar to Hebrew. If these people are not able to speak Hebrew, it's not surprising that the names come out sounding different. There's a remarkable shortage of traditional Hebrew names that would end in I-A-H, for instance, or that would start with J-E-H, or that would end in E-L, Samuel, Isaiah, Jehoshaphat, names of that sort, that contain parts of the name of God or references to God. It's understandable that a nation that would be drifting away from the things of God would wind up naming their children less and less after God himself. The language you speak indicates the thoughts of our heart, and such may very well have been the case for the people of Israel. Maybe the reason that they are not mentioning God as often as they had before is because they weren't thinking about God as often. The things that you say and the things that you don't say make a profound commentary on where your heart is. If we are speaking the name of God prominently and proudly as the people of God, that testifies to who we are. If we're not speaking the name of God, that ought to make you wonder. The story of Nehemiah, of course, is the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, and in a more philosophical sense, the rebuilding of the nation and the nation's identity. Part of that story that really jumped out at me was in chapter 6, and starting in verse number 10, where he entered into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined at home. We found out later, evidently, this is a man who was a prophet, a man who was well-respected, respected enough for the governor to go and visit him at his home. Shemaiah says, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. Nehemiah is taken aback by this. He knows that this is exactly the opposite of what he's trying to do. It doesn't seem reasonable that he should run scared like this, and suddenly it occurs to him, this is not a prophet of God. This man is speaking because of his ties to the influences of Tobiah and Sanballat. He had sold out, in so many words. When the good guys become the bad guys, it is a terrible, terrible thing. Prophets become false prophets. Teachers become false teachers. It happens all the time. The New Testament talks about it as well. Perhaps the most famous prophet gone bad is the prophet Balaam. We read about him in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. But Nehemiah reminds us here that a true prophet of God is never going to speak against the interests of God. 
Nehemiah may have been specially directed to know what the will of God is with regard to the city walls. We know that we are specially directed, though. We are given a specific direction to go in the pages of the New Testament. God tells us what his plan for us is. Many a prophet has come along in the last 2,000 years to try to tell us some other idea about how we are supposed to be living our lives and conducting ourselves in worship and service. But if they're preaching some other gospel other than that which has been received, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, that person is to be accursed. Verse 14 of that same context indicates that there were many prophets who were doing this. Noadiah the prophet, as is mentioned specifically, as well as the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Their breed has not died in the modern day. People will continue to try to pull you over into some corrupted version of God's will for your life. Don't fall for it. As 1 John 4 verse 1 says, test the spirits to see if they are from God. You're capable of doing this, and your soul may very well depend on it. There are a couple of relatively well-known verses in the book of Nehemiah. I found myself, though, drifting to chapter 1 and the prayer that's given to us there of Nehemiah as he hears word about the city walls of Jerusalem, and he's taking upon himself responsibility in this matter. Especially verse number 6, he prays, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have committed against you. I and my father's house have sinned against you. This is an example of a national prayer, a prayer by an individual, presumably a relatively righteous individual, at least compared to his contemporaries, a prayer that is confessing not only the sins of the entire nation, but the sins of the one who is doing the praying. I and my father's house have sinned. Before Nehemiah takes personal responsibility for the actions that are going to help fix the problems in Israel, He's going to take personal responsibility for the sin that brought the wrath of God that destroyed the nation in the first place. I see no reason to think that Nehemiah was especially sinful by standards of the day, or by our standards as far as that goes. Clearly, Nehemiah was a righteous man, someone who was trying to do the right thing, someone who was committed to the work of God, far more than a lot of other people, I'm sure. We've already mentioned a few of the prophets or so-called prophets that were actually against the interests of God in these days. And such has always been the case. And it's really easy in situations like this where we see ourselves as being part of the solution instead of part of the problem for us to point fingers at the bad guys, the so-called bad guys, and say, if they would fix the situation, then things would be so much better. And maybe pray on their behalf if we're feeling magnanimous. But the bottom line is we need to pray for ourselves. When we take personal responsibility for a problem, then that puts us in position to accept personal responsibility for fixing the problem. This is why Nehemiah is committed to this. It's not just that he's fixing other people's mistakes. He's fixing his own mistakes. He's standing as a representative of the entire nation. He's willing to take that. We need to do so as well, whether we're talking about praying for our entire nation, praying for the human race, praying for an individual congregation praying for the people of God at large. We have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. The quicker we own up to that, the 
the more motivated we're going to be to start turning things in God's direction. I was drawn to the word leaders, as is used in Nehemiah, particularly in chapter 12, verse 46. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, they were leaders of the singers, songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving to God. He mentions this in the context of the rejuvenating song worship that was going to take place at the institution of these walls. As Nehemiah leads the nation in rebuilding and in reconstruction, he also leads them in celebration for the presence of God that was among his people, for the great new chapter in the life of the nation that was unfolding in front of them. They needed worship, and worship requires leaders, such has always been the case. I have a special fondness in my heart for people who are willing to take on the role of leadership in a worship assembly. Someone needs to take charge, whether you're talking about a political effort like Nehemiah's, whether you're talking about a construction effort, or whether you're talking about a spiritual effort. There needs to be a leader. Someone needs to step up and take responsibility. It's much like a song worship leader. He picks the song to sing. He chooses a tempo. He chooses a key. He gets everybody to start on time. He maintains a tempo so that everybody can sing in unison. His work lays the groundwork for everybody else's work. And by having proper leadership, leadership that is informed, leadership that is motivated, leadership that is effective, everybody else can sing along. Whether you're talking about collective worship, whether you're talking about prayer, whether you're talking about work, any kind of effort that we do in God's name, a certain degree of leadership is necessary. Thankfully, we have the Good Shepherd to give us the ultimate leadership that we need. And thankfully, we have people who are willing to follow in his footsteps, guiding us in the best way, the most effective way, the most reasonable way to carry out his will and to give him the praise that he is deserving of. God bless our leaders. And God bless those who follow him. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip to the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading Esther. God bless and keep reading.